Crippled Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability, with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark, with Andrew Gerza, shining a bright light on sex and disability. Hello, hello! Welcome to the Minnesota of Disability After Dark. This is a tiny little morsel of awesomeness where normally you read things back to... No, that's not how it works. I, you, send in your letters and I read things back to you, hilariously speculating about disability culture, sex and disability, whatever you want to tell me about disability. We have received some awesome letters, but we need more. So if you want to submit to a Minnesota, tell me all your things. Tell me about how your parents view your sex life. Tell me about um, that weird thing somebody said to you in bed. Tell me about how your sex ed class went as a disabled person, or if you even had one. Tell me all the things. Send me all the letters to our Gmail, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. But now, let's get to the Minnesota. So, for this Minnesota, it's actually a little bit special because I talked to my friend, Claire A.H. She didn't want to send in a letter. She was like, let's do a voice clip. And I was like, that's great. And then I also realized that if you want to send in a voice clip for your Minnesota, that that's easier for you. If typing is something that is not actually accessible to you, um, let's do, you can send in a, in a voice memo. We can do it that way. If you want to send in your thoughts and stuff via voice memo, that's great. Let's do. Let's open it up. So if you want to send in a voice memo and I can talk around that, that's amazing. But she wanted to do a quick interview about how academia views disability. She recently uh, had a paper accepted to a big journal and we wanted to talk about how sexuality and disability was perceived within academia and how what it was like for her having her name and her body talked about in academia and all those things um and basically we discuss how academia needs to change the way they perceive sex and disability because it's really dry kind of boring and not sexy and enough and and we talk also about why academics want to talk about sex and disability so much, and it, it comes down to funding or quotes and stuff like that. So here's our interview, our fun digital interview with my friend, Claire A.H., about sex, disability, and academia. Claire A.H., I am so excited to have you back for a very special Minnesota that isn't me reading things back on the air. Hello. Hello. So nice to have you back on the show. You actually reached out to me the other day and said that you wanted to talk to me about disability, sexuality, and your experiences in academia, which I thought was awesome because I've wanted to talk about that for a while. So tell me all the things. Well, so uh, myself and Natalie Rose, who is a, uh, she's doing her PhD focused around disability and um, romantic relationships. 
we're friends and I had a stroke like three years ago now and well actually three strokes and um, it meant that I spent a fair amount of time in the hospital and in inpatient rehab and had a lot of experience with occupational therapists. Now Natalie's background is in occupational therapy and she and her husband Tim Rose, these I mean I'm acting like you don't know them, they're friends of yours, um, they came to visit me when I was in inpatient rehab and part of it was like a social call but then it really quickly turned into talking about my experiences there and I mean I at the time you know was working in sexuality in pretty much every way shape and form um, doing a lot of not only my day job but also uh, the storytelling night and uh, radio show and podcast all around sexuality yeah. so it was important to me and uh, that was something that they, they were also part of the sex positive community and they were like how's that going have you talked to anyone about sex and I was like no and I really don't feel comfortable and I was in a position where you know, I was a sex educator and I wrote about sex and I talked about sex really publicly all the time. And even I, I just, I, because some mix of being sick, being in a really unfamiliar area, being in a medical space, being in a space with people who I didn't think necessarily cared or understood about that side of thing. Well, not that they didn't understand, but they didn't understand why it would be important to me. Um, I just didn't talk to anybody. There was no opportunity. And I did eventually talk a little bit more about sexuality with um, my vocational occupational therapist when I was in the outpatient program. But that was once I kind of got my voice back and got my sass back. Um, so anyways, we, we talked about it while I was inpatient. And then when I was out of the, uh, the rehabilitation facility, Natalie and I hung out and wound up talking about it while recording and we talked about it for like two plus hours it was Amazing. a long time and then um and then we sort of put together this article which was a co-constructed autoethnography so basically That's a big word. Um, what is what what is that what is that so we we put together a like co-constructed together um this this sort of auto, not like an autobiography, but an ethnography. So a background of, of my experiences um, around sexuality in the occupational therapy uh, world. And essentially the article was positing that sexuality is not really represented as an important occupation even though it is technically it fits all the criteria for an occupation and um, occupational therapists need to not only be open to talking about sexuality if someone comes to them but um, either proactive in talking about sexuality or at least finding ways to signal that openness so it was interesting because it was an article about me it wasn't I mean, there were obviously, there were larger discussions about sex and occupational therapy and why they do to go together. But all the examples were based on my body and my sexuality and my life. And it's been interesting because I think, like, there was a period of time where I wasn't nervous at all. And then I got into a more nervous space. And then once we, we got the approval, we went through uh, two different journals and we wound up with a, a much larger journal, 
once we got the approval, I was like, oh, wow, okay, my name is attached to this. I'm like, we're talking about my clitoris. We're talking about, you know, the sex I have with my partner. We're talking about these these very intimate things. And um, the university I'm at is on strike right now. Uh, but when we eventually return and I actually get to submit the paper I've written, I reference myself. And so in doing that, A, that's a superpower move for an academic uh, paper, but also I'm referencing a paper that is un like I mean it's not unbelievably graphic for porn standards, but I would say it's unbelievably graphic for academic. An academic, standards. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, when you submitted with all your stuff, like I ha- I've had papers written, like one paper my my best friend wrote about me and my experiences, and some other people with CP. She wrote about me, but she like used a different name, so. Mm-hmm. Do they do that here, or is it like your Oh, name? no, it's my name. Yeah, oh, wow. it's my full name. And um, <laughs> initially I was using it, I used to go by uh, a pseudonym, and initially I was using the pseudonym, but I stopped using the pseudonym. This was a pseudonym used back when I uh, worked in, like, administration for uh, adult content. And I stopped using that when I stopped working in the adult industry. And, yeah, I just used my actual given name. It's also been interesting because... I mean, my parents are very supportive of the work I do around sexuality, and like I, you know, I talk about sex and disability in a lot of different ways, and they're pretty supportive of that. But this article really lays it on the line in a personal way, whereas when I talk about sex and disability, it's often more broad. Yeah. And it's not about my own personal experiences as much. And it's more just about like you know healthcare or racist sexuality, and here are some examples. Yeah, or yeah. It's a little more rhetorical, a little more maybe philosophical, as opposed to directly implicated with my own sex life. So my parents have been like, "Oh, well, we'd love to read the article," and I'm like, "Well, I guess." Yeah. Okay. Sure. Mom. Talks about my butt a lot. You're gonna hear about my clitoris. <laughs> That's super like cool, folks. Love you. Bye. Like yeah. Yeah. Awkward. And I don't know, I mean, in a way, like, I think obviously they'd be able to handle it, but it's, it's, it's a weird feeling going from, I guess, like, being the sexuality person invited into educational spaces or healthcare spaces and, like, being there to talk about sex versus being an academic person who has chosen to talk about sex and has chosen to talk about their personal sex life. Like, it's not tell me something good. It's it's not that the yeah, sexy story. Like, yeah, it's like, this is, like, professional academics reading about your, your yeah. actual sex life with your real name attached. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember I was asked to write an article for a big U- like US journal a couple of years ago and I wrote the piece and it was it was like really personal and I laid it out and they wrote me back and said it's this is too you've gone too far here like we can't <laughs> we can't submit this and I was like um cool do you know who you're getting like like okay so do you feel like in doing all this work and submitting this paper that's very personal to you do you feel like and seeing the, the kind of you, we talked before I hit record about how they redacted a bunch of your stuff when you initially submitted to one of the papers. Do you feel like, um, what is my question? Do you feel, <laughs> do you feel like the academic sphere is afraid of sex and disability in its most real raw sense? Yeah, I mean, I think I think academia in general and like the world in general, especially the world as seen as more proper. 
um, is uncomfortable with sex in general. And sex and disability is something where you're taking two things that are misunderstood and stigmatized and putting them together. And also they're seen as very oppositional where, where, you know, we don't often see disabled people as being sexy and having sex. So it's been interesting because I think, I think that, and I, I genuinely felt from the beginning and Natalie as well, genuinely felt from the beginning that what we were writing, it's not salacious. It's not, it's not, you know, sexual for the sake of being sexual. It is, purely to contextualize and explain what's happening. Yep. So, and the journal that we, we ended up being published in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, um, they understood that. And so I think... Which is pretty awesome, by the way. Let's yeah. Just, like, let's just, like, clap for that. That's, that's, yeah, that, like, let's that's, just get some snaps for, for the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. I, being I can't up snap because I'm super disabled, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm snapping on the inside for you. Exactly. Well, we'll do whatever joyous thing we do. But yeah, I think it was like it's right on the line. And I feel like if if it was even slightly more like overtly sexual or colloquial in the descriptions of sexuality, so a little more like, you know, slangy, um it wouldn't have been accepted. It would have been and and it wouldn't have been accepted because it was improper. Yeah, because it didn't meet those really like strict standards of academia. Yeah, I mean the I, the I, irony I, is there's a whole journal of sex and disability which I mm-hmm. which I'm you know combing through right now for art for for yeah. podcast ideas. But even reading that, like I have combed through pages and pages of of like their journal to, to find articles that I could be, could use for a show idea. And I noticed that, like, so much of academia, when they talk, even when they talk about sex and disability, it's so, so, first of all, it's so rehabilitational in its scope, and it's so dry that I'm trying to read these articles and trying to make them, like, personal and trying to find a way to bring, like, how can I make this a podcast episode and make it funny and make it exciting and make it, like, make it palatable to an audience. It's really tough, and so it's like, why do you have this whole journal dedicated to sex and disability if all you're going to do is talk about sex and disability is this thing that's wrong well yeah and i mean it's it's because it's academic and it's because the audience is not people who necessarily really want to like empathize and understand stuff about sex and disability it's people who want to either quote it so that they can get funding or so that they can get um, more attention to their research or so that people who are involved in whether they're in rehabilitation or like occupational therapy, physiotherapy, if they're doctors or nurses, whatever, they can understand it without having to kind of challenge themselves too much to step outside of this really, like, I don't know, it's it's about propriety, and that's what I have been struggling with, because even in my own personal, you know, when I've written about sexuality, when I've even written about things that are more salacious, I have tended towards the more philosophical or open-ended or not super attached to my own personal experience. Yeah, yeah because it's safer. Like, And I, what I've noticed is, is, like, it feels safe to do that. But, you know, in my work, I'm, I've am i been forced to be the exact, you know, to not have to do that because, I don't know, like, for me it's different because I feel like I have to go in there because it's also kind of cathartic and therapeutic. And so, like, mm-hmm. what do you think, what advice, lastly, before I let you go, because... 
Otherwise, it'll turn into a whole episode of us talking about this. That's true. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we can do that another time. <laughs> we totally should. But what do you, what would what advice would you give to academics who are reviewing these submissions and people who want to write about sex and disability for academic journals? Um, well, I really liked the structure that we used, and that was totally uh, Natalie Rose just being awesome and thinking outside of the box, where we were able to use actual quotes from me and actual information about my life and it was able to be personal as opposed to theoretical so I think looking for frameworks that um, express things outside of the standard way that um, papers and journals are often written yeah um, for people so I, I guess that's kind of for everybody for people looking to write about sexuality and I would say also people looking to accept work about sexuality specifically sex and disability is I don't know exactly how we found the sweet spot, but it, was, it wasn't it was the sweet spot for the first um, journal we applied to. The first journal we applied to redacted a lot of the content and was not comfortable with the words that were sexual in nature, but were sexual in nature to explain something. Like, if you take out the word missionary from missionary sex, then it takes away the meaning, which for us was me being on my back and having my injured neck in a position where it was receiving um pressure yeah so being able to to think critically about what is sex for the sake of sex or the sake of being salacious and what is sex for the sake of giving clarity and and not censoring things just because they're words that make you uncomfortable but really looking at the reasons for using those words and i mean if they're really colloquial and slangy finding alternatives but not removing those words in and of themselves because they make you uncomfortable not removing those concepts in and of themselves there's a difference between censoring things that are just out of the scope of academia and and wouldn't be comfortable in academic circles in general and finding ways to contextualize concepts that might be traditionally not acceptable like you can use the word cock if you're talking about it in um you know the etymology of penises to describe masculinity <laughs> blah 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 like there's a way of explaining these things you can use the most like extreme language and concepts if you find a way to sort of explain them and explain their significance and not use it for shock value you're yeah. not looking Italy. You're not looking to get someone off with your academic journal usually, <laughs> yeah. but there are ways to to still retain sexual content and not make it be scary or problematic. Yeah, I, and I think so. I just think it's funny that you could use the word cock if you absolutely if you like look at. The, I, I just like how you you said cock, and then right after that you said etymology. That was just amazing. Just the, yeah. those two words together in a sentence right now is the greatest thing ever. Well, there are so many queer studies, and, like, you look at, like, queer studies uh, journals, and they use all sorts of awesome words. Yeah. And, I mean, those are more sociological in nature, and a lot of sex and disability also lives within, like, the medical healthcare world, so those worlds are a little more, you know, prudish, yeah. and they might need to catch up with other respected academic journals that just are a little more open with their content. Totally, totally. Claire, I could talk to you about this all day because it's great. Um, 
Thank you for digitizing the Minnesota. This was a great addition. I'm so glad we did it. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. All right, friends. That's it. That's the Minnesota. That's how you do it. You can send me in a letter and I'll read it back to you hilariously. Or you can do a digital voice clip and we can do a little mini interview for the show. But I hope our discussion around sex, academia, and disability was fun and enlightening, and thanks, Claire, for doing a digital minisode with me. If you want to send in your thoughts, feelings, ideas, voice memos, all the things for a minisode, send them again to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com, and we'll see you Friday for our full-length episode all about silly things I've done for boys to like me that compromised my disability, health, and safety a little bit, because... I've done some really ridiculous things, uh, which you'll hear about on Friday. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota. Bye! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright, Crippled Content Creations, 2018.